everyone to another edition of Governed by God, a biblical look at law, civics, and government. My name is Eric Google. Thank you for joining me on today's episode. So, last week we looked at uh, Alexis de Tocqueville's book, Democracy in America. Uh, and in keeping with that topic, there is another section of that book that I want to look at regarding democracy, majority, and tyranny. But first, let's take a look at our passage of the day, which is a related passage. It's from Exodus chapter 23, verse 2. It says this, it says, You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many, so as to pervert justice. So, the passage in, uh, in verse 2, Do not side with the many to do evil. The initial context of that law is regarding testimony in court. Perhaps a group of people that are trying to take out someone, uh, conspire against that person to uh, defeat them or to sue them or to ruin them. Um, so it really does relate mostly, or initially I should say, to acts of law, testimony in a court. Um, and it has to do with false reporting and false witnessing. Now, God has commanded Israel here in the, in the book of Exodus to not go with popular opinion, that justice is not determined simply by a majority vote. All right? Uh, God is the one who determines justice. And a person in Israel should not give in to the temptation of just going with what's popular, going with social pressure, to, to, to do something. Now, it's, this is very unique among systems of law in the ancient world because uh, a lot of cultures, justice and law were determined by the king. The king was the source or the fountain of law. The king spoke, it was like, it was like a god speaking, whether it's Pharaoh, something like someone like him, or Caesar, right? Uh, but justice is not determined by one man who represents a god. It's not determined by the king. It's also not determined by majority vote, by the demos, by the people. Justice is determined by God, all right? And so there might be a time when the good thing, the just thing, is not popular. We would hope that it would be popular, but that's not always the case. And many times, what is popular is not what is good, is not what is just or biblical. Um, you just have to wonder if a poll were taken at the crucifixion of Christ. You know, the crowds, they had turned against him. The Pharisees swayed the crowds against Jesus. And if a vote were taken, would Jesus have been executed? Well, in a sense, a vote was taken, right? They had, they, had, they had asked the crowd, Pilate had asked the crowd, should I release Barabbas or should I release Jesus to you? And they said, release Barabbas, crucify Jesus. And that was a majority of the people that were there. Was that a majority of all the people of Jerusalem? Maybe not, but I think that the Pharisees would have made sure 
that a majority of people would have just gone along with the pressure to crucify Christ. So the application of this law is multiple. It, it relates to mob mentality and protest. It relates to conspiracy to commit crimes, maybe some kind of like mafia organization or cartel where they are working together, uh, bribing people, and, and the majority uh, vote to do something. Maybe for the wrong reasons, but they're still voting as a majority. Or any kind of law passed by the majority, that's an evil law. And here in the United States, there are those that get uh, passed by the majority. And the point is that God's people are to avoid the social pressure to do evil, whether that is a perceived majority, you think that that is the popular opinion, or it's the actual majority. So that is our passage of the day, and it does relate to what I want to say regarding Tocqueville's book, Democracy in America. Last time, we looked at what he has to say regarding the power of the majority in America. And again, this is the 1830s, so America is still very, very young. Uh, It's only been about 40 years since the Constitution was ratified. And he's going around the country uh, just observing and learning, investigating how the states interact with each other, how the government functions, and what the culture of Americans is like. And so last time we saw that he recognized the majority had great power. Whatever the majority decided, that was what everyone went with. And if you went against the majority opinion, you were alienated, shunned, ignored, and essentially canceled. Okay, and this was true even in the 1830s of the United States. Now, he asked the question, why does this tyranny of the majority not really have much power? Besides that social pressure, why is it not so bad? What's holding it back in America? And he says in chapter 8 that it is the absence of administrative centralization. So let me read. It's just a couple paragraphs, but all of it is so well well written that uh, I just I need to read it. Here's what he says, quote, Previously, I distinguished two types of centralization. One I called governmental, and the other administrative. Only the first exists in America. The second is almost unknown there. Let me pause. Just to summarize what he said in a previous chapter. When he says governmental centralization, he means that the power to bind the conscience, the power to wield the sword, the power of, um, of government is, is, can be centralized in a particular body, okay, like, like Congress. All right, or something, or someone like that, or or a king. A king has a centralization of power, right? But administrative power is a different type of centralization. Okay, so one kind of refers to the force of something. Okay, it's strong. 
when it makes a decision, that decision stands and that decision gets enforced. Okay, that's one type of power. The other type, the administrative power, covers like the scope of things. It, it covers every aspect of your life. So it's one thing for the government to say, you cannot commit murder or, you know, some kind of rule that is firm and definite and, and enforced, but it's really only covering a narrow aspect of your life. But an administrative centralization covers everything about your life. Uh, the food you eat, how you build your house, how you dress, how you speak. Every single little thing about your life is governed. Okay, so that's what he's talking about. So he says the first exists in America when the majority speaks and passes their laws. They have power and they are obeyed. They, no one can stop them. But the second is almost unknown there. Let me continue. Quote, If the power that directs American societies found these two means of government at its disposal and combined with the right to command everything, the ability and the habit of carrying out everything by itself, if, after establishing the general principles of government, it entered into the details of application, and after regulating the great interests of the country, it could reach as far as individual interests, liberty would soon be banished from the new world. Let me stop there. Okay. So it basically says, if you could combine that, if you could get a powerful government that has the desire to do everything itself and to regulate everything, you would soon lose all liberty in the new world. But he continues here, quote, but in the United States, the majority, which often has the tastes and instincts of a despot, still lacks the most advanced instruments of tyranny. In none of the American republics has the central government ever taken charge of anything other than a small number of objects whose importance attracted its attention. It has never undertaken to regulate the secondary things of society. Nothing indicates that it has ever even conceived the desire to do so. The majority, while becoming more and more absolute, has not increased the attributions of the central power. It has only made it omnipotent in its sphere. Thus, despotism can be very heavy at one point, but it cannot extend to all. So pause again. So, so you see there, he's making it very clear here that, hey, uh, the majority does not seem interested in covering every area of your life, but where it acts, it acts powerfully, okay? And in some senses, it is despotic in those points, but there are not very many areas that it's trying to control. So in that sense, it's not so bad, okay? So let's see what else he has to say about this. Quote, besides, however carried away the national majority may be by its passions, However ardent it is in its projects, it cannot in all places in the same way and in the same moment make all citizens yield to its desires. When the central government that represents the national majority has given orders as a sovereign, it must rely for the execution of its command on agents who often do not depend on it and that it cannot direct at every moment. 
So the municipal bodies and county administrations form like so many hidden reefs that slow or divide the tide of popular will. Were the law oppressive, liberty would still find a refuge in the way in which the law would be executed. The majority cannot get into the details, and if I dare say so, into the puerilities of administrative tyranny. The majority does not even imagine that it can do so, for it is not entirely aware of its power. It still knows only its natural strength, and is unaware of how far art could extend its limits. Let me stop there. There's only one more paragraph after this, but the restraining power is the local governments, the municipal bodies, the townships, the counties, because even when the national body, the majority of the nation wants to do something, it cannot control the townships and the counties. It requires them to play along. Uh, just consider, just a real, real modern example of this is you've probably heard in the news of the New Mexico governor trying to suspend constitutional carry, open carry, I, I believe, constitutional carry. And the sheriffs, at least one of the sheriffs, said he's not enforcing it. He's not going to enforce it. And that governor can't make, uh, it'd be very, very hard for that governor to make the sheriff comply. And so, in a sense, uh, the local government is restraining. And it's an obstacle. It slows things down. It breaks up this wave of power that comes from a centralized location, in this case, the governor of New Mexico. And there's other examples of that, even modern ones today, regarding masking and COVID restrictions and lockdowns and, and things like that. So the point here is that Tocqueville saw that there is power in the national majority and majority opinion. There's power there, but it's really... It's really limited. It doesn't know how far it can go, and it can't get really far because it can't break through all the towns and the counties that it really depends upon them to enforce the rules that it's making. As long as that's a thing, as long as that is true, the majority cannot be tyrannical. So let me read this final paragraph here. Here's, and this, was, this really struck me. Listen to this, quote, This merits reflection. If a democratic republic like that of the United States ever came to be established in a country where the power of one man had already established administrative centralization and introduced it into habits as well as into laws, I am not afraid to say that in such a republic, despotism would become more intolerable than in any of the absolute monarchies of Europe. Okay, now that is a little scary. Basically, he's saying, if you already had an administrative centralization, and what do we mean by that today? Well, lots of unelected people controlling every aspect of your life. Okay, that's, that's administrative, all right? That's EPA, CDC, IRS, FBI. That's, that's everything. That's all the agencies. That is administration. That's what that is. Unelected individuals who make rules, 
who interpret rules and who enforce rules. They have legislative, executive, and judicial power. And it's been given to them by the true authority. In our case, that would be Congress and the president, um, and even the courts, of course, because they've, they've deferred to the agencies. So when you have administrative centralization and then you have the power of the national majority that Tocqueville's talking about, he's saying you would have the most intolerable despotism that you could even imagine, worse than the monarchies of Europe. Now, later on in following sections of this book, Tocqueville explains some of the reasons why that, that, that things have stayed this way. Why is it that the towns and the municipalities and the counties are able to restrain the tyranny of the national majority? And how is liberty preserved? And he says there's three things that seem to preserve the liberty of the American people. The first is God's providence in what he's provided for the United States. The second is its laws, the common law that it's received from England. And the third is from its habits and its mores. And I'm going to briefly look at those. I'm not going to quote large uh, sections of it. But uh, when it comes to God's providence, he says, well, uh, America has no serious neighbors, like no, no serious threats as neighbors. It has no large capital, capital city. Uh, there's no fears of wars and invasion, and has a very large space. So he spends time discussing how all of those things help to restrain the growth of governmental power. Okay, because if you had a lot of competition, a lot of threats of invasion, then the government must be stronger, bigger. If you have a large capital, then you have a large bureaucracy that runs the country. You don't have that. And by having a large space, it allows people to spread out, and it's very hard for a central government to control a space that's a thousand miles away. But in a very small space, that would be a little different. So that's what he means by referring to the providence of God or what God has provided for in the United States. The second thing that Tocqueville sees as restraining tyranny is the, the power of the town, the township, uh, municipality, the counties. Uh, also, the form of federalism that it has. So um, the, the central government is really only has a narrow aspect of things that it's supposed to do per the Constitution, and the states have more power uh, to control different things. And then um, the fact that there's an independent judiciary, so the judges, uh, a lot of times, they are keeping uh, power in check because the judges are seeing things as unconstitutional and they strike them down. Um, that helps to limit the power of the democratic majority. Uh, and then he goes on to talk about the moral and intellectual state of the people or the, the mores. And here, Tocqueville talks about the religious faith of the American people. He says, quote, 
of all religious doctrines, Christianity, whatever interpretation you give it, is also the one most favorable to equality. Only the religion of Jesus Christ has placed the sole grandeur of man in the accomplishment of duties where each person can attain it, and has been pleased to consecrate poverty and hardship as something nearly divine. So he's talking about that folks even honor, they honor poverty in some sense, and and contentment. Christianity um, helps to provide uh, a level of contentment and a lack of materialism. Uh, Not that you give up everything, but the whole point is that um, Christianity helps to uh, break down like a caste system or the sense of nobility, okay? And this helps to preserve uh, liberty and a level of equality. And he goes on to say this. He says, quote, All the sects in the United States are, moreover, within the great Christian unity, and the morality of Christianity is the same everywhere. Again, he, he points out that, yeah, there's a lot of uh, differences, okay, among the different groups of Christians, but the basic morality is pretty much the same. And he goes on to take a look at how Christianity is viewed publicly. He says this, quote, Among Americans, some profess Christian dogmas because they believe them, others because they fear not appearing to believe them. So, Christianity rules without obstacles, with the consent of all. As a result, as I've already said elsewhere, everything is certain and fixed in the moral world, while the political world seems abandoned to discussion and to the experiments of men. Thus, the human mind never sees a limitless field before it. Whatever its audacity, it feels from time to time that it must stop before insurmountable barriers. Before innovating, it is forced to accept certain primary givens and to subject its boldest conceptions to certain forms that slow and stop it. So, what he's saying there is that, first of all, many people profess Christianity because they actually believe it. But many others profess it because they uh, they don't want to be shown as someone who's not a Christian. So there are false believers there. But as a result of this, Christianity, the morals of the Christian faith, they serve as guard as guardrails, as barriers. Because he says that the moral beliefs are certain and fixed. Okay, everyone recognizes and agrees what the limits are. Even if you don't personally believe in Christianity, you're constrained by these morals that the culture has embraced. And he says that in the political world, they just discuss everything. They talk about things, and they have these ideas that come up on how to govern themselves. But whenever these ideas come up against the morals of Christianity, they're stopped, they're slowed down. There are certain barriers that must not be crossed, okay? So it can't innovate too much because there is structure there that it cannot go It cannot go beyond. The Christian faith, the morals of Christianity serve to, to stop any attempt at innovation that would be tyrannical or uh, that would be immoral or evil, right? And so that's how Tocqueville sees this working together, and that's the way it's supposed to work, okay? The the Christian faith is supposed to 
restrain evil, even if not every single person obeys Christ because they actually love him in their heart, but it provides a testimony or a witness to the truth in the culture. The shining of the light, exposing darkness, the acting as salt to preserve that which is good. Christianity does that in a culture, and that affects how things are done in the realm of politics. And so I bring all this up, and we're going to close with this, that Tocqueville was quite prophetic. He was very insightful, brilliant man, and he really got a lot of things right. And the more that I read from him, the more I see just how wise he was. And this is 200 years ago. And he saw this with, with America as a very young nation. So he recognized America was definitely Christian. Even if not every single person actually believed it, it was everywhere. It, it set the groundwork. It set the foundation for how, how the country could function. And it restrained the tyranny there. So, so the Christian faith, coupled with the federalism and decentralization of the laws, coupled with the state in which Americans found themselves in, uh, God's providence as far as their size and safety and lack of large capitals and no threats, all of these things combined together to help them to preserve liberty. But at the root of it, as we see now today, is the Christian faith, because we still have very relative security. We still have lots of space. Yes, our capital city has kind of grown in size and scope and power, okay, but there's still distance there. We still have a federalist system, although it's being torn down by the administrative state, but what's really allowing all this to happen and what's really taking down all the barriers is the lack of the Christian faith. Because now we are embracing ideas, political ideas, that would have been unthinkable you know, if we were restrained by the Christian faith. So, And that is why the gospel is so important in preserving liberty. I hope that you found today's episode interesting. Again, I cannot recommend enough uh, Tocqueville's work, Democracy in America. We'll see if I, uh, we'll stay with that book for a little bit. There's a few more topics that he brings up uh, that I find very interesting and I think are worth talking about. One is slavery, and the other is the relationship between men and women in America. But there are there are many other topics, but um, I wanted to touch on that today. I do think I might look more at administrative law in future episodes because that seems to be the great threat that we face today, at least from a centralized government perspective. So look for that in the uh, in the near future. So with that, again, I appreciate you listening in today. And until next time, take care and God bless.